I'd like to, I'd like to ask you a question this morning for you to consider. Uh, just for a moment, what is one thing about you that you wish could be different? One thing. You don't have to say anything out loud. Don't shout it out to me here. Just think. <laughs> Someone's not good at following directions. Um, one thing about you that you wish could be different. Someone said, there's lots of things. <clears throat> That's probably true. <clears throat> Excuse me. When you think about this question, maybe you can think of a lot of things, but one thing, the main thing, the biggest thing. Maybe you wish you were younger looking. I'm not, I'm not directing that at anyone. I'm just throwing this out there. Maybe you wish you were skinnier, smarter, more successful, richer, Happier. Maybe you long for intimacy with another person with whom you can share your life. Maybe you wish you had relief from some physical pain or illness. But as you think about yourself this morning, is there one thing that you could say, you know, if there's one thing that I could change, one thing that I've always wanted to change, what would it be? When we think about the sin of discontentment, or if we think about it in a positive sense, the virtue of being content, we tend to think in terms of money, possessions. Being content means being satisfied with the money or with the things that you have. At least that's how we often think about it. And that's not wrong. But the issue of discontentment, especially for the Christian, runs a whole lot deeper than just money and material possessions. The dictionary defines discontentment as dissatisfaction, a restless desire or craving for something one does not have. Jerry Bridges in his book, Respectable Sins, warns that for many Christians, uh, discontentment arises from ongoing and unchanging circumstances that we can do nothing about. As you think about your life, there may be some ongoing circumstance. Maybe an illness, chronic pain, that can cause us to struggle with discontent. Or it could be dissatisfaction with our bodies or the image that we are <clears throat> conveying to others. And we wish we could convey a different image. I'm reminded in kind of a humorous way of the story of Anne of Green Gables, if you're familiar with the book or, or the, the, the television productions of them. The girl who always wished she could get rid of her red hair. Right? Just any other color but red. Right? That was a, created some interesting and fun, kind of funny situations. But the idea that there maybe is something that you're dissatisfied with, or, or maybe it's just loneliness that comes from not having a spouse, or maybe having lost a spouse, and no longer having that person with, the, with whom you can share your life. Any of these circumstances could open us up to this temptation of discontentment. When the Bible speaks of contentment and discontentment, it uses a variety of words, and all of them have slightly different meanings. Contentment in the Bible includes ideas <clears throat> such as a willingness to yield and a sense of peace and tranquility. There's even a word that seems uh, or that, that means to lift up your hand as if you're saying, enough, I've had enough, I'm done. Don't bring any more. Right. According to the Bible, someone who is discontented is a person who's always complaining. And someone who has bitterness of soul, it's actually a, a Hebrew term that's used 
and translated as discontent or a related term in the Bible. It's not a pleasant idea. Think of someone who is constantly complaining or has bitterness of soul. A person who's discontented is probably not someone you'd want to be around and spend a lot of time with. But the problem of discontentment isn't primarily that it makes you critical or bitter, though it certainly may. The problem of discontentment is that it's a sin that often leads to other more serious sins. In that way, it's kind of like the sin of ungodliness. We talked about that back on February 24th. The example of Esau. Remember Esau who was an ungodly person who just didn't think about God really at all. And it caused Esau to make a very foolish decision, a choice to sell his birthright because he saw no value in it. Yet once he had sold it, it was a foolish decision that he couldn't take back. And though he wanted to go back and undo it, he couldn't. The sin of ungodliness had caused him to make an even more serious error, one that could not be undone. And so this morning, I'd like for us, at least at the beginning here, to consider the example of a person in the Bible who was not content. And it caused her to make a very serious error. I invite you to take your Bible and open it to the book of Genesis, right at the beginning, chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. As we think about what's going on in Genesis 3... We're at a period in history where there are only two people alive on the earth. The first two people. (laughs) Their names are Adam and Eve. You may have heard of them. And they live in a perfect place that God had made for them. It was a garden, an orchard that God had planted specifically for them as the perfect place for them to live. The Garden of Eden. That garden had everything. And in the garden, they had everything. They didn't need a single thing. Yet even there, in that place where they had all their needs met, even there, they were tempted by discontentment. Look with me at Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God's, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Let's pray as we begin to examine the Word of God and ask God's help this morning to understand and rightly um, apply the truths of His Word. Heavenly Father, I come to you this morning again needing your strength and your grace. I cannot preach this morning without your help. I cannot communicate the truth of your word without your constant support. Lord, I need you. We need you. So that when we hear the word of God, it it doesn't just sound to us like some book that was written, some uh, wisdom from man that, that someone dreamed up, but that we would receive it as it truly is, the word of truth that the scripture would come alive to us this morning. And we would see that this is absolutely the truth, not just for Eve, but for us. Help us to learn what you want us to learn today. 
And I pray that you would help us to see our desperate need of Christ. Our desperate need of forgiveness and of grace. And I pray that you would help uh, each one of us to respond uh, properly to the word that we hear this morning. We'll give you the praise for it, Lord. It's your work that we ask that you'll do in Jesus' name. Amen. What we have here in these words, or rather in these verses, is a case study in discontentment. Liz, that's what I've entitled it. A case study in discontentment. Adam and Eve were created sinless and perfect. They were placed in an ideal spot. Think about the Garden of Eden for a minute. It was, it was a garden that was filled with every variety of fruit-bearing tree that God had made. All of them were there. Adam and Eve had no need to ever go hungry. Anytime they were hungry, there was a a fresh supply of ripe fruit for them to eat. Always. But not only that, they would never get bored by eating the same thing. Because there was such a variety. Think about it. All of the variety of fresh fruits and vegetables for them to eat that they could want. So if you get tired of eating one thing, then you can eat something else. And you can move from, pl- from place to place in the garden and you can eat. I remember just uh, uh, two weeks ago when my folks were here and dad made comment about going to India and eating rice for breakfast, lunch, and dinner the whole time he was in India. And he didn't want to touch rice again when he came back to the States. Well, you know, they didn't have that problem. They didn't have to eat the same thing three meals a day. They could eat whatever they chose. They had all of this variety. So not only is there perfect uh, supply of abundant fruit, food, but there's also a great variety. So there's no, there's no need to be bored with it. it it's, it's just tremendous opportunity for them. God gave them everything they needed from a physical standpoint. Think about this as well. They had perfect companionship. <clears throat> they had perfect companionship. I mean, when today, when, when a man and woman get married, um, we sometimes have the idea that it's going to be a perfect companion. Right? Our, our culture has this idea of the, the, the word that we often use is soulmate. And our, and our society actually has the idea that you, know, um, you have to find the soulmate. And if you don't find them, you're going to be miserable. So you keep looking until you find them. And that may mean having to, to marry and divorce and remarry as many times as possible until you find the soulmate. Um, which, you know, anyway, don't get me started on that. But listen, this is important because we have this idea that uh, a person that we're going to get married to someone, and that person is going to be a uh, perfect companion for us. And of course, what happens? Those of you who are married or have been married, um, you get married, and it doesn't take you very long. The honeymoon probably isn't even over yet. Maybe the wedding night isn't even over yet. And you go, wait a second, what did I get myself into? <laughs> and you realize this person is not a perfect companion. When my wife and I got married, and this is a good story. Well, I'll tell on myself here, but um, she's not in here anyway. She can't hear, but um, when my wife and I got married, um, the, first, the first night, um, you know, I, I have a, a tendency to snore. Well, when I, was, when I was younger, I snored all the time. I was kind of renowned for that. I had a reputation for that. So we got married, and she, she was about to, like, go nuts. She didn't know what she was going to do. Because I'm snoring in the bed next to her, and she's thinking, is this the rest of my life? I'm going to lay up, wake, wake, and listen to this guy snore? And uh, we were on the honeymoon, and she said, she goes, if, if, I won't be able to sleep. I get, you, you know, she said, you're going to have to do something. And um, so you're going to have to go see a doctor or something. I don't know what, but, but you know, I can't sleep. And, um, you know, so I, I guess I'm not the perfect companion, um, I guess. But uh, anyways... Um, well, the good thing is that, that, this is totally unnecessary information, but the good thing is that when we were on a honeymoon, we were sleeping in a king-size bed. And when you're in a king-size bed, it's like you're on an island by yourself because you're so big. There's like, oh, there's another person here? I wouldn't know. Um, that's how I feel anyways. And um, when we came back, we didn't have a king-size bed, so we slept on a queen-size bed. And, and I'm a pretty big guy, so even on a queen-size bed, I'm like, oh, hey, I can tell that somebody's there. And uh, so it, it actually changed the way that I sleep a little bit, having another person in the bed with me so I don't snore as badly as I used to, and generally sleep speaking, I don't. So it's tolerable for her now, so it works. 
Um, you can see she survived almost 15 years. So, um, but anyways, the, the point is um, that, that, that we're not perfect companions, right? We have idiosyncrasies. We have oh, flaws. We have character flaws. We have uh, particular weaknesses, and, and, and particular issues and idiosyncrasies that, that make us not a perfect companion. But you know something? When God created Adam and Eve in the garden, He created perfect companions. They were what you and I, as in our human relationships, never are or can be when they were created. They were perfect companions. So Adam and Eve had perfect companionship there in the garden. A spouse who never sinned against them. Imagine that. A spouse who never acted selfishly. Imagine that. And yet, they became discontent. How did that happen? It seems like almost a mystery. How in the world could they possibly uh, disobey the one command that God had given them when he had given them all of this incredible abundance and provision and taking care of every need that they would ever have? God had told them that one thing. Don't eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that's in the middle of the garden. So let's look closely at what happened here. It all starts in verse 1 with the serpent's influence. The creature comes along, and he begins to have a conversation with the woman. Now, I know this is a, um, an interesting scenario. There's probably lots of questions that you have about this. I'm not going to answer all your questions today. I'm not going to get sidetracked with all that. That's not my purpose. So it doesn't really matter right now why Eve was okay with the talking snake. It doesn't matter where Adam was while the snake was deceiving his wife. It doesn't matter whether or not the snake was walking on legs or slithering on its belly. None of that stuff matters those questions aren't important today. Uh, let's just try to forget about them for a minute. You can ask me later, and I'd be glad to talk with you about this stuff, but I, I don't want to take all day to do that now. What matters and what's clear be, from the language and the, and the way it's described here is that the, the serpent was an ideal tool chosen by Satan. We don't, he's not named here, but his identity is very clear here. And elsewhere in Scripture, it's also clearly points us back to this and tells us that Satan was the one who was manipulating this situation. He was using the serpent. So the serpent is the perfect tool. Why why choose the serpent? Well, because he says here in verse 1, the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which Yahweh, God, had made. Cunning here is not a bad term. Uh, it doesn't mean that he was somehow a, a, an evil creature, had some sort of evil. We, we tend to think of that word cunning today usually has a negative connotation. When we say that someone is cunning, that's not usually a, a really positive remark. But the word here is, 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 is not referring to something like that, not anything negative. Of course, at this point in time, there is nothing negative at all. God had said that every creature that he had made was good. His entire creation was very good. God had said that. So this cunning serpent is not evil. It's just a creature that God made. And yet it was a perfect tool that Satan used. Now, notice the serpent's influence begins with a simple question. Has God indeed said? And what's his question? You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Now this question is interesting because it is, it is intentionally vague at least in the original language, the original Hebrew. It could be asking one of two things, and either one, and there's not really any good way to differentiate between them. It could be asking, what the serpent could have been saying was, has God said, you shall not eat of every tree? But it also could be saying, has God said, you shall not eat of any tree? That word could be translated either way, every or any tree. And it's really impossible for us to say. And I think that's on purpose. The question is intentionally vague. He's not challenging God directly. He's just asking a question that is open to interpretation. But that's that's on purpose. And the reason he's doing that is he wants to stir up feelings of dissatisfaction and discontentment in Eve's heart. And so he asks this question. 
Questions are very powerful. Questions get through our barriers, get through our walls and defenses very easily. Because questions stir us to think. And they cause us to think about things. And they continue thinking about things. And, and whereas a statement or an accusation often is met with resistance, a question will be received very differently. And so the serpent, he comes and he asks Eve this question. Has God said you can't eat of any tree or every tree? No. Take it however you want, Eve. Has God put restrictions on you? Now, instead of thinking of the incredible abundance and variety of God's good gifts, Eve begins to think about the one thing that he prohibited. The one thing that he said was beyond the boundary. Instead of being satisfied with the 99% that she'd been given, she begins to focus on the 1% that had been withheld. Now, in verses 2 and 3, we see the woman's response. Woman says to the serpent, right, what does she say? She, she does acknowledge that God had provided. She says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. Yes, God has given us the, the right to eat of the trees, of the fruit of the garden. But then she pointed out that God had excluded one tree from their diet and warned them to avoid it under the pain of death. Now, there were a couple of subtle things here in her response that show us that that there was already discontentment and questioning beginning to happen in her heart. She may not even have been fully aware of what was happening here, but but she is beginning to question this. If you notice, and and you could just look back in chapter 2, verse 16, it's probably on the previous page, but God said there to Adam, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden. God specifically said, you can eat from any tree. Eve, when she um, explained to the serpent what God had said, she left out part of it. She said, we may eat the fruit of the trees. You see, God had emphasized you can eat of any tree. Eve didn't emphasize the same thing. There's a difference of emphasis there. What's the difference? I know this is kind of subtle, but, but Yahweh, the Lord, emphasized freedom. Well, Eve did not. So part of the language that God used was to emphasize, you are free to eat from any tree. Now, also there in chapter 2 and verse 17, when God made the restriction, when he prohibited them from eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he said this, on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. If you notice what Eve said back in chapter 3, and verse 3, It's a little bit different. God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. That word lest there is important. It's a different kind of an idea from God saying, you will certainly die. You will absolutely die when you eat of this fruit. Lest means there's a chance that we'll die. There's a risk involved. There's a possibility. See, what he was saying if she's saying that there's some uncertainty as to the consequences here. Whereas God had said there is certainty. If you eat from this tree, you will die. Period. Full stop. And Eve says, oh, there's a little bit of uncertainty here. We may die. The Slight differences, and yet I think it emphasizes, it shows us that there's already, in Eve's heart, there's already beginning to be a stirring of discontentment. A stirring of dissatisfaction with the the provision of God, with the place that God had put her. Rather than being at peace and resting in God's loving care and the abundance of His provision, Eve is beginning to become dissatisfied. The seeds of discontentment are beginning to sprout in her heart. And this reveals to us this morning the first aspect of discontentment that I want us to consider, and it's this. Discontentment questions whether God's gifts are good or are even enough. Discontentment questions whether what God has given is good and whether what God has given is good enough or is enough for us. It begins to ask subtle questions in our heart, not necessarily out loud. We begin to 
to have these kind of questions in our heart and our mind. Has God really given me everything I need? I mean, stop and think about that for a minute. Just in your heart, think about this honestly. Can you say, I believe God has given me today, in this moment, everything I need, period? Or is there some part of your heart that's saying, you know what, I feel like there's something else that I need that I don't actually have right now. That's discontentment, working in your heart. Begins to ask, had God really given me everything that I need? Another question you might begin to ponder in your heart, are his gifts really good? Have the things that God given me, are they really good? Again, sometimes this happens, um, I, when I, to me, an especially good example we see in this is within, within marriage. Begin to ask, is this spouse that I've been given from God really, really good? Did God really give me a good gift? The book of Proverbs says that a man who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. A wife is a good gift that God gives to a man. The Bible tells us that. And yet, sometimes men begin to think, you know, I'm not so sure she really is a good gift for me. Maybe there's a better gift out there for me. See? And we can become dissatisfied. Maybe you're thinking this question. Maybe this is a different kind of angle on it. Is there anything good that God has held back from me? Maybe... God has held something good that I could have, but He hasn't given it to me. Or maybe you begin to think, are, there, are the consequences really as severe as they've been made out to be? Just a little, just cross the line here, a little, I'll get right back. You know, I'll just, I'll just go across the line a little bit, reach for what I want and get back. You know, nobody will have to know. It won't hurt anything. There won't really be any serious consequences. Because that's what Eve began to think and began to imagine in her heart. You know what? I, I wonder if it really is that bad. And so she begins to question these things. This is what discontentment does. It begins in our heart and it causes us to question if God has given us really good gifts and if God's gifts are even actually enough for us. Maybe God hasn't really supplied everything I need. We begin to think along those, those lines. Now, Let's continue on, verses 4 and 5. Because now we see the serpent's lies. Now he begins to directly and boldly contradict the things that God has said. He tells Eve that it's not true that she would die if she disobeyed. But he directly contradicts what God said. And then, by the way, he then suggests there's actually a much better outcome, a much better outcome that could happen if Eve would disobey. What does he say to her? God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God. See, there's something good here that you can have that God has withheld from you. You'll know good and evil. And he was implying that God was keeping them down, that he was holding them back from reaching their full potential. He was implying that they could actually become like God himself. But please understand, this was false. It'd be kind of like if you, if you told the chair that you're sitting in right now that it could become like the person who built it. My understanding is every one of these chairs was hand-built. Is that correct? Handcrafted? Okay. In a factory in Tennessee or something. And uh, hand-built. A person built the chair you're sitting in. And it'd be like telling that chair, you know, you can become just like the person who built you if you stop acting and thinking like a chair so much and start thinking more like a person. Just take it. It's yours. I know, that's stupid, right? Well, that's what Satan was telling Adam and Eve. You, creature, you, thing that God has made, you can become like God if you just stop acting like a thing and a creature that God has made and start acting like God. Just reach for it yourself. It's, it's, it's as utterly foolish as telling the chair you can become like the person who built you. Okay. More so, but that's a good analogy, I think. All they have to do is throw off their creatureliness. Become like the all-wise and all-knowing God. Just take it. 
And of course, that's what Eve really wanted. At the beginning, I asked you, what is it that you really, what is the one thing you'd like to change? What Eve really wanted more than anything else was she wanted to be independent. She wanted to have independent knowledge. Not knowledge that was mediated to her by God, but knowledge that she acquired on her own. And she wanted to have the ability to act on that knowledge, free and independently. That's what she was determined to have. Eve, in a word, Eve was determined to have free will. She was determined to have it. But again, it's preposterous that any person could achieve such a thing. Can't be done. By the way, it's also a subtle attack on the nature of God Himself, right? Because in suggesting that Adam and Eve could become like God, the serpent was really saying, you know, there's nothing really special about God that makes Him different than you. It's just that He's holding you back. He's not any better than you. He's not different than you. He's just in a stronger position. But if you can topple him from his throne, there's no reason you can't be like him. He's nothing special. So what Satan is doing is he's lying to Eve about Eve. He's putting ideas in her head that she can be more than she is. He's also lying to her about God and saying God isn't really special. And not only that, but, there's, but the serpent is telling her there's no moral basis. This is an arbitrary command. God just made up this rule. But we need to understand something. God doesn't make up rules. There are no arbitrary commands with God. The commandments and the laws and the rules and the expectations that God gives are based and rooted in His own character and nature. They are who He is. And so again, the issue here is that the serpent is challenging her view of God. And trying to give her a different view of God. And this is what discontentment does. You see, discontentment, secondly, questions if God is really righteous. Or if He's really unique. Is God really righteous? Does He really do what's right and know what's right? Or do we know better? Is God really unique? Is He really holy? That's a key question. We tend to want to think that God is arbitrary, capricious. And that really we could probably do a very good job of being God if we just had a chance. If I could just sit, you know, if I could just sit in control and rule the world, it would be better. If I ran the circus, I think there's a Dr. Seuss book about that. Now, the truth is, again, Satan is, is presenting a preposterous lie. But because Eve is being attempted with discontentment in her heart, she is susceptible to this. Okay. Now, finally, we come to verse 6, and we see the woman's conclusions here. She's inspired by the serpent's question, by his denials, and by this tantalizing offer to become like God. And she begins to observe the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil more closely. Look at that in verse 6. She saw three things. What are they? First of all, she saw that it was good for food. The fruit of this tree appealed to Eve's natural, inborn, God-created desire for food. You understand that? The desire that Eve had... To eat good food and good fruit was something God gave her. He created her with that desire. We call it hunger. God gave that to us as His creatures. It's how He ensures that we eat and sustain our bodies. If He didn't, we might not eat and we would die. I mean, I know it's hard to imagine ever not eating, but that's, you know, the point. He gave us the desire so that we would. It's a good thing. God had given this desire to Eve, and she's looking at this fruit, and she's thinking it it fits. It's perfectly natural to want to eat this fruit, right? Of course, we hear that a lot today. Well, this particular thing is perfectly natural. 
that we should want it. It matches with my desires. Oh, that's a dangerous, dangerous line of thinking. That's discontentment. Working in our hearts to justify what we want to do. And so we begin to think, well, it just, it, it must be good because it's natural. Whoa. That's what Eve's thinking here. Next, notice what she says. She sees that it was pleasant to the eyes. It was visually appealing. Listen, this is super important. Never underestimate the power of your eyes when it comes to stirring up discontentment in your heart. Has anybody ever heard someone say, it's okay to look, just don't touch? That's a really popular idea today in our society. Hey guys, it's okay to look at that girl. Hey, you're not planning to do anything with her. You're not going to touch her. You just, hey, look, enjoy the view. It's harmless. It's not harmless. It is extremely dangerous. Why? Because the eyes are incredibly powerful when it comes to stirring up discontentment in our heart. Being dissatisfied with that which is actually ours and rightfully ours. If we're not careful, oh, we can stir up discontentment by what we see. That's a dangerous game to play look but don't touch. That's what Eve was doing. She's looking. It's visually appealing. Oh, be careful. Be careful with what we see with our eyes. And thirdly, she sees that that this tree provides her with an opportunity. It's an opportunity to gain the one thing that she wanted more than anything else in the world. Wisdom and self-determination. This was her opportunity. That's what she says. It was a tree desirable to make one wise. That's what she wanted. She wanted to be in charge. She wanted to have the knowledge and the ability to use that knowledge at her own discretion, and this was her opportunity to do it. She saw it. Notice, this is important. She didn't need this fruit to sustain her life. Oh, it appealed to her natural hunger, but she didn't need it. She had lots of trees which she could satisfy her hunger with. She didn't even need it to, 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 to satisfy her desire for beautiful things. You know, you know that God has given you a desire to appreciate and enjoy beautiful things? That's not an accident. In fact, to be quite honest, it's one of those things that is very challenging from a purely naturalistic and evolutionary standpoint. How do you explain the love of beauty? And the fact that across humanity, there is an incredible a sense that we have of desiring things that are beautiful and enjoying things that are beautiful. And even across cultures, although there are some differences, there's an incredible amount of, of overlap between what we find beautiful and things that we find beautiful. Well, that's not an accident. That came from God. He gave you a heart that appreciates things that are beautiful. Why? Because He's a beautiful Creator. He created beautiful things and He wants you to enjoy them. So He made you so that you would enjoy them. Eve is just acknowledging that. Hey, look at this. It's beautiful. God has made it this way. But again, she had so many other uh, fruits that were visually appealing that she could satisfy that with. This was not necessary for her to meet any of her actual needs. But the one thing she saw in this fruit that she wanted was independence from God. And she concluded there's no reason not to take of it. And there's a powerful reason to eat it. And so she took it and she ate it. This is the third aspect of discontentment. It begins to question if God's laws are wise. So first I'm wondering, has God given me enough? Has He really, has he really given me things that are good and that are enough for me? Then I begin to wonder and question whether or not God Himself is really good and righteous and really unique in His godness. Maybe He's kind of missed something important here. Maybe He's not really doing what He ought to do here as God. And then finally we begin to think, you know what? His laws and all these things He's written and all these things He expects, 
I wonder if they really are wise. And you know what? I bet you they're not. I bet that there's actually something he just doesn't want us to enjoy. This is the kind of thinking that discontentment brings in our hearts. And then discontentment causes us to justify all sorts of other actions. That's the issue here. Discontentment is never by itself. Discontentment comes and then it causes us to to want things that we have no right to want and to be dissatisfied with things that God has given us. And then we begin to act on those desires and we wreak all sorts of havoc in our life. But discontentment really is another form of unbelief. And so, in, in a lot of ways, discontentment is like ungodliness, and it's like anxiety that we talked about last time. It's a form of unbelief. It's unbelief in the goodness and the generosity of God. It's unbelief in the righteousness and the holiness of God. It's unbelief in the wisdom of God. And, and Eve sadly discovered all too late the power of discontentment in her own heart. It led her to rebel against the Lord alongside of her husband, And they and the rest of the human race, all of us who are their offspring, fell into the curse of sin and condemnation as a result. The Bible tells us that we are all born as sinners because of the sinful choice of this one man and this one woman who began it all. And so you need to recognize, I need to recognize that discontentment is a sin that has roots that are deep in the desires of our hearts. You need to ask yourself, what is the one thing you want more than anything else in the world? You ask that question and you honestly answer that and you know what you're going to find? You're going to find discontentment abounding right there in your heart. That's the thing that's going to drive you. But here's a question, what do we do about it? How do we deal with it? Because this passage doesn't tell us anything about how to deal with it. It tells us how Eve failed to recognize it and how she was deceived by it. But we need direction, right? We need to know how to deal with discontentment. And for that, we have to look at some other scriptures. I'm going to try to do this quickly, even though I wish we had more time to really expound these passages. But first, if you'll turn with me, and try to, we'll try to do it quickly, but Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Book of Ecclesiastes, right after the book of Proverbs, I believe was written by Solomon, who wrote much of the book of Proverbs, and also wrote the Song of Solomon. But the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 5, we find there a very helpful perspective from a man who had more material wealth, a man who was richer and more powerful, a man who had more pleasure at his fingertips than any of us will ever have. And he wrote in Ecclesiastes 5 a very important perspective. Look at verse 10. He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver nor he who loves abundance with increase. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. So what profit have the owners except to see them with their eyes? The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. There is a severe evil which I have seen under the sun, riches kept for their owner to his hurt. But those riches perish through misfortune. When he begets a son, there is nothing in his hand. As he, came into his, as, as he came from his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came. And he shall take nothing from his labor, which he may carry away in his hand. And this also is a severe evil. Just exactly as he came, so shall he go. And what profit has he who has labored for the wind? All his days he eats in darkness, and he has much sorrow and sickness and anger. Here is what I have seen. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life which God gives him. For it is his heritage. As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. For he will not dwell unduly on the days of his life because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. As I said, I wish we could go through this and verse by verse unpack this. There's so much here, but 
Let me just summarize this point here. What is he saying? A couple of observations. First of all, the problem of discontentment is really a heart problem. That much is clear from verse 10. Those who love silver, those who love abundance, love wealth. The issue here is a heart issue. He's not saying those who have silver. He's saying those who love silver. That's the heart issue. If you love silver, you will never be satisfied with silver. See, the problem isn't money. The problem isn't possessions. The problem is what we love with our hearts. Loving material things, loving relationships, loving fame or power will always leave us dissatisfied because we'll be in the grip of discontentment. And there is no good to be gained by pursuing those things. If you read down and try to summarize the, 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 the problems with pursuing and seeking after all of these material and temporary things, he says pursuing after uh, uh, those things will, leave us, will, will, will lead to frustration, to fear, to sleeplessness, and to heartache. But here's the question. What solution does he offer? And he gives us a solution here in the passage. The solution, and and this solution is, again, coming from a man who had more wealth than anyone alive. We ought to enjoy the fruits of our labors all the days of our lives. That's what he says. He says, this is a gift from God. To enjoy the fruit of your labors. God has given us much to enjoy. And we ought to rejoice in God's goodness and His generosity. We ought to simply take pleasure in the good gifts that God has given. This is an important thing that too often is overlooked by Christians because we think somehow it's pious to act like we can't enjoy this life. Solomon says, you know what? God has given us the gift of enjoying the good things in life. The good things He's given you. You have things in your life, good things. You have relationships. You have family and friends. You have food and drink. You have uh, uh, you know, entertainment choices that you can be involved in. And there are so many good things in life. You should enjoy them. You should focus on that. You should be thankful and rejoice in that. And it's a remedy for discontentment. Because notice how he ends that passage, the very last verse in verse 20. He says, God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. He says, the man's not going to sit and worry about the days of his life because he's too busy enjoying life. He's enjoying the things God has given him. So there's a solution, a remedy for discontentment. Learn to enjoy the good gifts of God. God, I don't know what they are in your life. God has given you good gifts. Again, if you're married, you know what? Enjoy your spouse. Learn to enjoy your spouse. Pursue that. Because God has given it to you to enjoy. If you have children, enjoy your children. If you have grandchildren, I hear that's a lot of fun. Enjoy your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. Why? Because God has given them to you to enjoy. You should enjoy them. That should be a big part of your life, that you are, are enjoying and taking pleasure in those good things God has given. Listen, we live in an abundant society, in a society that is wealthier than any society in the history of the world up to this point. We have access to food and pleasures and things in this world that are good. Please understand, I'm not saying just go out and live for pleasure. What I'm saying is we have a lot of good things to enjoy. Someone said corned beef and cabbage. Ugh. I don't like it. But if you enjoy it, listen, enjoy it. God gave it to you to enjoy. I, I, as I said, I think the, the brisket is much better barbecued, but in my opinion, that's how I want to enjoy it, okay? But you should enjoy it. You should feel guilty about enjoying it. In fact, you should be focused on enjoying that because God gave it to you as a gift, and you should be enjoying God's good gift today. That's that's what we ought to do. Learn to take pleasure in the things God has given you in this life. Because they come from God and He gave them to you for that purpose. That you would enjoy them. We should not go around life moping, always sorrowful. I can't enjoy anything. I'm a Christian. I don't dare enjoy any of this because I'm not supposed to love the world. 
Well, I totally agree. We are not to love the world. But enjoy what God has given you. That's not loving the world. That's fulfilling His purpose in putting you in this world, at least in part. And you should do that. Solomon gives us very wise advice here. And it's a remedy for discontentment. If you're focused on enjoying all the good things, you're not going to have time to sit around and worry and think about all the bad and all the things you lack and all the things you don't have because you're too busy enjoying those good things. That's what he's saying here. All right, let's move on. Another passage. Please turn to 1 Timothy 6. Edward already read this, so we won't take time to read the whole thing. But I'll read a couple of verses here because this is important. The New Testament has a lot to say about the issue of of discontentment and then positively about contentment. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Look at verse 6. Paul says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it certainly can carry nothing out. By the way, that's, that sounds an awful lot like what Solomon was just saying. Right? We brought nothing into this world, and we can't carry anything out of this world. So we should be content. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Notice this, for the love of money, same point Solomon was making, the love of silver, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. It seems like, at least on some level, people who are rich seem to live better than people who are poor. At least on the surface, that often appears to be the case. But as we've seen this week, I was thinking about it, you have this, you've heard about the, 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 the scandal related to the college entrance uh, exams and all that kind of stuff that was going on. All these people have been arrested and, you know, a bunch of well-known celebrity people being involved in all these kind of things. Listen, the rich are often consumed by their own discontentment. And they're compelled to do stupid things to feed their desires, and we see it in the news. Okay, so you want more evidence? Just go look at the news of that story. That's all it is. It's a bunch of rich people who are discontented with life and they want something more and they're willing to do stupid things and put their whole lives in jeopardy just to get something more. Because what they have is not satisfying to them. Now here's the thing. As Christians, those headlines should not surprise us at all. We should see that and go, yeah, it's been going on forever. This is just one new way they figured out to do it. But rich people do this all the time. And I'm not just blasting rich people because I'm poor. It's not it. okay. <laughs> joking. I'm, I'm not, that's not the point. Okay, because poor people do stupid stuff too. They just use it on the means to do this kind of stuff that we see rich people do. Right? But the point is that God's word tells us a desire for riches brings suffering Harmful desires and ultimately ruin and destruction. That's exactly what Paul says here happens when we love money. When we desire to be rich. So when it comes to the issue of discontentment, this is really important. You need to learn this lesson. We need to learn to take God at His word. You need to learn to simply believe what God says in His word and not what your heart is telling you. He says here in 1 Timothy 6 that the desire for riches leads only to despair, but that godliness with contentment is great gain. You see, it's not wrong for us to want to gain. We were talking about this on Wednesday night. It's not wrong for us to want to be rewarded for following God. That's not a bad thing. In fact, God puts that desire in our heart and He gives us things to reach for. He talks about crowns and rewards for a reason. Because it's a motivator. It helps us to want to do these things because we want to pursue the reward that will be there. That's not a wrong desire. But the issue is, he's not promising that we're going to necessarily have great gain in this world. We will certainly have great gain in the next. So here's the question. Do you believe what God says? We don't have time to turn there, but we could read 1 Corinthians 7, 17 to 26, where Paul says four times in, the, in, in, in 10 verses, he says four times it is best for us to simply remain in the situation that we're in. And he's not talking about money and possessions there. 
He's talking about life circumstances. Do you really believe what God says? Paul says it's best for you to simply remain in the circumstance you're in. Are you married? Be content to remain married. Are you single? Be content to remain single. Are you a slave? Uh Uh-oh. Be content to remain free in the Lord, even while you're a slave to man. Are you a free man? Don't become anyone's slave. Whatever your life circumstances are today, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, four times, God's word says, it is best for you to remain as you are. To be content in whatever situation you find yourself in. It's not just about money and things. It's also about your life. The circumstances in which you find yourself. The relationships you're in. The family you have. The job you have. All of those circumstances. God gave you those. He put you there. You have to believe what God says. You say, well, it doesn't make sense. Why should I want to remain in this situation that's so painful and so difficult? Because God says that it's best for you to simply be content where you are. I know it's painful. I know it's difficult. But believe what God says. There's another passage that can help us with this area of contentment relating to this Issues, 2 Corinthians 12, we won't turn there, we just, we're running out of time. But Paul says this, in 2 Corinthians 12, he talks about his thorn in the flesh. You may remember that passage. It's some sort of physical suffering that Paul prayed three times and asked God to remove, and God refused. But here's what the Lord said to Paul. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. You know what Paul said to that? This is amazing, and you need to get this. This is super important. What Paul said to that in response, for the sake of Christ then, listen, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. (laughs) No, no, Lord, I'm content with a big house and a three-car garage and a new car, and a pool. I just saw this one. My wife showed me this morning on Facebook that it's like it's actually like a patio, and then you push a button, and it like drops down into a pool, and then it, it's really cool. It's a hidden pool. Awesome. I want one of those. I, that, Lord, I'll be content with that. Just give me that, and I'll be content. No, no, Paul says, I'm content with weakness. Weakness? I'm content with insults? Hardships, persecutions, calamities. Paul says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. I do want you to turn to one more passage, though. Philippians chapter 4. Because that passage dovetails nicely with 2 Corinthians 12. And helps drive home this last point that we need to make. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm sorry, I I spoke wrong. Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. Verse 10. The Apostle Paul writing to the church here at Philippi. And he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry both to abound and to suffer need I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me now Philippians 4.13 that verse we ended with there it's one of those verses that gets ripped out of context and gets abused you know people love to this is one of those verses that people love to, to you know, cross-stitch on a pillow and put it on their couch or put it on a frame and hang it on the wall or you know, display it somewhere prominently. People love to take this and say, you know what? I can run a marathon because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Woo! And I can, and I, and, and I can, you know, I can do all these great things. I, I can uh, climb a mountain. I, if, you, if you go online and you search for pictures related to Philippians 4.13, 
You'll see people climbing mountains and running marathons and, and raising five unruly kids and whatever. I mean, you just all, you can do it. You can do it because God will strengthen you. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Wow, that is not what Paul is saying here. Whew. He's saying the same thing here that he learned back in 2 Corinthians 12. That God's grace is sufficient to meet his need and therefore he is content. He's content with sufferings and abuses, with hunger and thirst, with cold and hardship. But he's also content with comfort and peace, with food and drink, with warmth and friendship. He, he says, I can be in either situation. I can have much or I can have little. And either way, I am perfectly satisfied and at peace. Not because of me, but Paul says, the power of Jesus Christ who lives within me enables me to have peace in my heart no matter what the circumstances. This is the essence of true contentment. It's being at peace with God's provision no matter how things might appear. So when I said, do you really believe that God has given you everything you need right now? And you think, well, I would say yes, but I have a bill that I can't afford to pay. Or have a a problem in my life that I just can't seem to deal with. I have a person in my life who just is, is, is unruly and I can't get them straightened out. Or I have some situation in my life that just doesn't seem to be working. I think there's something I need yet. No, contentment is saying, you know what? It may not look like it, but God has already given me everything I need. And I'm going to rest in Him right now. See? That's true contentment. Being at peace with God's provision. Now, again, it's important for us to understand and recognize the power to be content here. What is Paul talking about in Philippians 4.13? The power to be content exists only in the hearts and lives of believers. That's evident in 2 Corinthians 12 and here in Philippians 4. If you have been born again because you believed on Jesus Christ then the Spirit of Christ dwells in your heart. And that means you already have the power to be content in every situation of life. You already have the ability in Christ to be content. You need to learn to rely on the grace of God in Christ. Now, it's important... For me to make this very clear, um, I've worded these points very intentionally. Contentment is something Paul said that he learned. It is something we must learn. It is not something that happens like a light switch being flipped in your life and all of a sudden you'll be content. Contentment is, is, is something that we as Christians, those people who've been born again and we have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in us, we... As we grow in the Lord, as we walk with Him and we continue to mature in Christ, we will begin to develop and learn contentment. Not something that happens quickly. And it's something that that young Christians and immature Christians tend to struggle with more. The older we get in Christ and the more we mature, the more we can learn contentment. But it's something that has to happen over time. So you need to learn these things. You need to learn to rely on the grace of God. You need to learn to to say, I have Christ, and therefore I have enough. He's working in you every moment of every day, both in sickness and in health, in pain and in pleasure, in need and in abundance. In every circumstance of your life, He is working to teach you to depend on Him and give Him thanks. So when it seems like you don't have enough, when something comes up short, guess what? He's teaching you to depend on Him. Don't be discontented. Learn to say, okay, I have enough because God has given me what I need. And if I need something else, he'll give that to me too. He'll give me whatever I need. If you have enough, if you have abundance, then you need to learn to give thanks. And God is teaching you to be thankful for all the abundance that he's given you. And in the same way, to be content. See, he's teaching us all the time. This is something that you and I as Christians need to learn and we need to develop in our life as we mature. But again, I say this very important point that if you are here this morning and you don't have contentment in your heart, it may be 
because you're not born again. And therefore, you have no spiritual life whatsoever. You've never trusted in Christ. Jesus Christ died for your sins and He rose again from the dead that you might be justified by God. But without His life in you, without the Holy Spirit living in you as a born-again Christian, you have no hope of ever truly being content. You'll always be driven by your desires. And you'll find yourself constantly dissatisfied and discontented. If that's you today, then you need to repent. What you need to do is you need to to turn from your sins and turn away from your life of self-reliance and you need instead to turn to Jesus Christ and put your hope and your trust totally in Him to save you. It's not coming to church or getting baptized or putting money in the offering or any other good thing you might do that will work. You must trust in Christ. Only then will you find peace in your heart. And only then will you have the power that Philippians 4.13 is talking about, the power to be content in whatever state you're in. I want you to pray this morning to God to save you, to forgive your sins and give you life and give you peace. Let's close with prayer together. Lord, realize this area of discontentment is an area that we all struggle with. We all have things in our hearts, desires, wants that are in our heart that make us susceptible to being dissatisfied and discontent. Lord, I pray that you would help us today open our eyes to see it. Show us, reveal to us what those things are in our hearts, those, 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 those heart issues that really cause us to be discontented. Help us to see that discontentment isn't, isn't something that just happens by itself. It's It's connected to our own desires. Lord, ultimately, we realize the Bible tells us we need to love you with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our mind. And only when we truly love you will we be satisfied. Lord, I pray that you would help us to love you. That you would help us to to, to tear down those idols of other desires and other things that we would chase after and that we would love. And give ourselves wholly to loving you with all of our heart. Lord, I pray that you would transform us today. By your power, that we would learn to be content. And I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know you, who's never uh, turned away from their sin and cried out to you and asked you to forgive them, I pray that they would realize right now they can pray to you and they can ask you to, to, to forgive them of their sin and they can uh, ask you to, to save them and give them eternal life and you will. Because Jesus died for them and rose for them. Oh, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to trust in you today. We'll give you the thanks and the praise and the glory for all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen.